Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Anne Montgomery. Now, Anne has lived quite the life. We're going to kind of go all the way from her time in high school and deciding she wanted to be a sports reporter all the way up through her time at small local news stations and being the first female sports reporter at a local news station, making headlines from that, moving on to ESPN, being one of the first females on uh, on ESPN as well. She was hired with three other female sports reporters. There's maybe one that came before her. Uh, we're going to talk all about kind of the the world of of, uh, of that and kind of breaking that, that glass ceiling, if you would, and kind of how hard that, uh, that ceiling was to crack. Uh, we're going to talk some about the unfortunate side of, I guess, being being somebody who was a trailblazer and and, uh, and kind of just how society, definitely when it comes to you know, the world of ESPN, treated her. It wasn't so great, you know. To to be honest, it wasn't great. You know, she's going to talk a lot about the highlights and then also some of the lowlights too. You know, I I think it's important to talk about these things because, like I mentioned to her a couple months ago. There was actually an article in my, my local newspaper, the Indianapolis Star, talked to all of the, the female um, sports reporters for the local news stations here, and they still deal with a lot of, I mean, no better word than just nonsense just because of their gender. You know, whether it's not getting the same access to athletes because of their gender, whether it's just offhand comments. So uh, Anne Montgomery, she was an anchor on ESPN from 1990 to 1992, so many years ago, over 30 years ago, but those issues still persist. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked to someone who was one of the first female forest firefighters, and the same theme, the issues still persist. So I think it's really important to to highlight those. It was a fascinating conversation just about how it was to work at ESPN in the early 90s. And then that extra layer of working there as one of the only female sports reporters. So I really appreciate your time there. We're going to talk about, you know, I said from 1990 to 1992. So 30 years, a little, almost, uh, almost 31 years have passed since then. And she's done a lot since then from officiating. She was an officiant at all five major sports for 40-plus years. Um, But the other thing she did, which is really, really awesome, was for 20 years. So she went back to college in her 40s um, after kind of her sports reporting days and became a a teacher at an inner-city school and and taught journalism there. So we're going to talk about that. That, she kind of got the inspiration and the idea to start writing books about some of the things she was experiencing. So she became an author. That's what she's doing now. That's kind of where we find her. Uh, So we're going to kind of wrap our interview up today talking about her books. And she writes literally about everything except for sports, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, But she wrote a book about the fundamentalist church and some of the major issues there. She wrote a book about 
um, an archaeological dig and and things being stolen. She wrote a book uh, about a serial rapist. Uh, just a, a ton of interesting, some heartbreaking books. But I, I, I really enjoyed speaking with Anne. I really think you're going to enjoy this. You know, whether you're a big sports person and want to hear about some of the early days at ESPN and some of the, the issues and, and challenges that uh, that hopefully they're, they're overcoming. But I, I just, I don't know. You know, I don't know somebody there currently. Uh, but we can talk to, to Anne today about uh, that time that she was there. Uh, whether you want to listen to the process of how an author writes, uh, we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, but if really, honestly, whether you're interested in authors or sports, just a, a fascinating life that Anne Montgomery wrote. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. So without further ado, here is Anne Montgomery. I'm here today with Annie Montgomery. Miss Montgomery, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. Absolutely. I want you to introduce yourself. But before that, just before we started recording, you were saying a lot of people call you Annie rather than Ann. Only your mom calls you Ann. And you were saying something about baseball Annie and was just flabbergasted that I didn't know what that was. So explain it to us if you would. That shows me how young you are. Okay. A baseball Annie. Did you ever see the movie Bull Durham? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, well, the Susan Sarandon character is named Annie. There is a reason. Annie's were were uh, women who uh, were groupies for baseball, mm. like for fifty years. So when someone's called a baseball Annie, they're basically calling them a groupie. Mm. Ah, so I hear you. Well, but I was an umpire, so I wasn't really a groupie. But you know what I mean. If you would introduce yourself, we was, we started in something totally different, but now tell us who Annie Montgomery is. Um, I'm a whole lot of things. Um, yeah. I was originally a sports reporter. Actually, no, I was originally a, 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 a server in a bar and a, and a, and a bartender oh. uh, because I wanted to be a sportscaster. But of course, that was back in the 1970s, ancient times when there weren't any women sportscasters. I mean, oh. my, everybody I knew told me it was not going to happen ever. I'd never be a sportscaster, uh, both in high school and college, even though I graduated with a degree in communications, all my professors said that will never happen. When I got out, I ended up working in a bar in Washington, D.C., and they were right. I couldn't even get an interview anywhere. And kind of accidentally, I, I ran into a man who was a hockey, an amateur hockey official, like for, you know, little kids. And uh, I'm, I was an ice skater growing up. And, and he said, why don't you become a referee? And I went, sure, why not? And even though my first game, I was absolutely terrible, I realized that because I came before Title IX, I didn't get to play football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, and basketball. Um, I could have played basketball, I guess. But um, so I decided to become an official in the five main team spectator sports, football, mm -hmm. baseball, ice hockey, soccer, and basketball. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do that for five years. And I felt some forward thinking news director would give me a job and thinking I knew about the sports, because let's face it, who knows more than the officials? I know everybody thinks we know nothing, but we do read the rules and no one else does. <laughs> so um, I did that and uh, someone hired me. I got a job uh, in Columbus, Georgia, not a fabulous place, but I worked there. And I ended up working for five TV stations as a sportscaster, um, including ESPN where I anchored SportsCenter for, for a while. And uh, but then I aged out of TV. I got too old. You know, once a woman's pushing 40, she's not hot enough to be on camera anymore. Huh. So um, I had to go back to officiating. I mean, I went from doing Sports Center to uh, officiating Pop Warner football. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was interesting. But anyway, uh, who am I? From there, I, I became a print reporter and I branched out into all kinds of things, not just sports. 
And then I became a teacher. I was a teacher for 20 years. Uh, I taught in an inner city high school uh, where I taught journalism primarily. Um, and I taught a little bit at, at uh, ASU's Walter Cronkite School uh, Sports Reporting until one of my students wrote uh, in, a, in a critique of me, couldn't they get someone younger to teach sports reporting? Mm. Hmm. Mm. So that, and I'm an author. Well, you've given us a great summary. We're going to unpack every every little bit of that. And I want to kind of know from the beginning, you just talked about how you know you were before Title IX, so you didn't have the opportunity to play a lot of these sports. What created that passion for wanting to become a journalist and wanting to be a, a, a sports journalist? Um, you, you weren't necessarily an athlete as a kid. You did do, I guess you were a skater, so you absolutely were. But what hmm. made you want to, uh, I guess, get into sports journalism? Well, like everybody who played a sport. Now, I was an ice skater. And I know many people don't think that's a real sport, but it is. Oh, um, sure. I, I was a nice dancer of no great talent. And I'm way too big. If you've ever seen any any like Olympic caliber female ice skaters, they're about five foot two. They're mm -hmm. tiny little people. I was not that. But anyway, I had a dream of being an Olympic gold medalist, which was ridiculous. I was a mediocre skater at best. But that put the sports, uh, the desire to be an athlete in my heart. I love to ski. I, I love to swim. And uh, I loved it. I ha hung around the arena. I was a rink rat. And so half the time the hockey players were there and I fell in love with ice hockey. Now today I'd play hockey. I would have been a good hockey player, but back then I didn't have that opportunity. So I loved sports because I got involved in them. My, I started skating as a five-year-old. At one point, I, I wanted to be in theater. I mean, I, li I like performing in plays. I'm a singer, that kind of thing. And one day my mother looked at me and she said, you're never going to be an actress. And I went, oh, okay, because, you know, you believe what your parents tell you. And um, I, at school, was involved in a broadcast crew. And I just started grabbing the sports stories every morning. And the guys looked at me and they pulled them back. They said, you can't read the sports. You're a girl. And I went, yes, I can. And the, the man who headed the broadcast crew was also the director of all the plays in our school. And he knew me because I was in all his theater productions. So he said she can read the sports if she wants to. And so the guys got angry and they made a special segment for me. And they they played a theme song and it was from Mission Impossible. You know, the dan, 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 that song. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, and here's Big Hand with the sports. They were making fun of me. Yeah. But I really liked it. And after a while, all the coaches kept giving me their announcements. And they said, would you, you know, do something on our game? And and I, when my mother came to me and said, okay, it's time to go to college. What do you want to be? I said, I want to be a sportscaster. And she said, don't be ridiculous. I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. Mm. And I went, no, I really do. And I never changed my mind. It's in my high school yearbook. It says, this is your local sportscaster. I was so oblivious to the fact that there weren't women sportscasters because there weren't not any real ones. So, um, yeah, I never changed my mind. It just took me till I was 28 to get a job in the, in the business. I mean, my parents were horrified. They were like, we put you through college so you could be a waitress. I'm like, well, I have a plan. I'm on a five-year plan, mom, you know? So I officiated all five sports. I wasn't great at all of them. Uh, football and baseball were my best. And those are the ones I continued. I ended up officiating for 40 years. Mm. And if you told me I would have remained an official after I got my job in TV, I wouldn't have believed you, but I kind of got hooked on blowing whistles and calling balls and strikes, strangely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. And I wonder... I mean, so what's kind of strange to think, you know, you're talking about your mom and saying you can't be an actress, you can't be a, 
yeah. supporter. I mean, once it all happened for you, did I, I assume that it kind of came from just a point of just being worried about you and wanting you to be successful and not trying to dampen your dreams? At least I hope not. Oh, no, no. My mother is 97 years old and yeah. she's mean as hell. Okay, <laughs> She's still mean as hell. But I'll say this for her. My mother was a reporter in the 1950s. Mm. My mother has a college degree. I was the only kid in our neighborhood with a mother who worked. Mm. Did, she did public public relations for 40 years. She's a, she's written four novels. My mother is a brilliant woman. Today, she'd never marry. She'd be a Supreme Court justice or president of the United States. She would. Mm. Mm. But she just didn't understand. If I'd said I wanted to be a newscaster, she would have been okay with that. But it was the sports angle she didn't get. To her, sports are something you do for your physical health because you enjoy it, but not because you, you know, you start throwing things at the TV because, you know, your team was intercepted. She doesn't understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it took her a very, very long time. And honestly, it wasn't until about two two years ago that she said she was proud of me. In (laughs) fact, seriously, two years ago, my mother was reading one of my novels and she read my biography at the end and she goes, oh, my God, you've done so many things. I said, where have you been, mom? Where have you been? <laughs> yes, I did do a lot of things. Why didn't you notice before? So at 97, she's OK with it now. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. That's yeah, that's really funny. And I want you to kind of you, you talked about it. it took you many years of officiating to actually get that first job. And it was in a a less than ideal area. I feel like most times when people get into the news world, it, it does turn into that. Talk about some of those stops. I don't know whether you've got any kind of interesting stories from that. I would assume the sports reporting in a small town is very different than a, you know, a major hub, but anything there? It, it is. My first job was Columbus, Georgia, which mm-hmm. is a uh, hundred miles South of Atlanta, but 50 years behind Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's Fort Benning. And, and I learned early on that many stations, a number of stations hired me because they were the lowest uh, rated stations in their towns. And I was a freak. I mean, we're talking the 1980s here. Mm-hmm. And, and to say they had a woman sportscaster coming in, it was like big news everywhere I went because they simply didn't do that. So I became the subject of stories all the time. Oh, my God, there's a woman covering the game or there's a woman doing sports. It was unheard of. And I realized that most of them were basically using me to get some rating points. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's OK. And, and when I was teaching journalism, I always told kids, go to a little tiny market where you don't know anyone for a thousand miles because you're going to do a lot of bad things on the air. You're going to look stupid. You're going to make mistakes. Um, and I know, you know, it's funny, all those years that I worked in the restaurant and I was officiating, it never occurred to me that I didn't know how to do the news. I mean, I, I'd done reporting in college. Uh, where the football coach, baseball coach, basketball coach all refused to speak to me, but I could go to any other team and they were delighted for the coverage. But I wasn't on TV live. And though I anchored some stuff in college, it was rare. And so all these years later, I finally get a job and I don't know how to anchor the news. Nobody ever gave me those directions. So the first night I'm on the air and I don't, you know what a teleprompter is, of course, right? Yes, yeah. Well, back in the old days, they weren't on computers. You you used carbon paper. Maybe you don't know what that is. It's where you put it in an old fashioned typewriter, type it up and you get seven copies or six copies. And I had no idea 
that those copies were supposed to be spread around to the producer, the director, um, the camera people, the teleprompter operator. I also had no idea how to type them. So I typed just like you would on a regular piece of paper from one end to the other, not understanding that only the words for me go on the right side of the paper and the left side is directions for the director. No one informed me of this. So my very first night on the air, they introduced me with a great flourish, first woman sportscaster in Columbus, Georgia. And I look at the teleprompter and all my scripts were cut in half because I had written from what no one said a word to me. So for three and a half minutes, I was live on the air with no scripts and no one told me to have them in my hands either. So today you see they they have iPads today. In the old days, everybody carried copies in case the teleprompter failed. So uh, yeah, I don't remember. It was kind of like a car accident. The bad thing was, is my mother's best friend was in Atlanta and she saw me on the air. Mm. And she told my mother, she said, mm. she's terrible. And my mother wouldn't see me on the air for two years. She sure. refused. So that was fun. But the good news is, is that's how you learn. Because I learned all about the teleprompter that night. Yeah. You <laughs> so, yeah. Try, trial and, and extreme air at some point. Yeah. Oh, it's like making a bad call in a ball game. You usually don't make that same mistake again. Yeah. So I, I, w- I was lucky to learn in little I went from there to Rochester New York I was also very fortunate that early on I had I had male partners who did not get bent out of shape when I showed up and who helped me out it wasn't always like that but my first couple stations were so yeah I went from Columbus Georgia to Rochester New York to Phoenix um and then I went to ESPN then I came back to Phoenix and I was the studio host for the um Phoenix Suns in the fun years Charles Barkley those guys when they went to the playoffs and yeah. so that was great fun. But then I was pushing 40 and nobody would hire me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder too, you talked about how it sounds like your first few jobs were, were not bad and hopefully none of them were, were too bad, but I'm th- trying to think maybe three months ago, I mean, I'm here in Indiana in Indianapolis, the Indy star, which is our, our main newspaper ran a big article where they interviewed the sports reporters, the female sports reporters at all the local stations, because they all have one um and just how they've been treated even now obviously this is years and years later and it's not always been super super great so this is oh no you know, 20 years in the future probably from where you're where you started so i just wonder what you experienced then here is what i can tell you they hired women sportscasters back when i was involved in it i think because they felt they needed to because it didn't look good if they didn't or it was like affirmative action they needed to throw us in there but it was my uh especially at espn where they were especially crappy about things um they you know i figured they they hired me they said because i'm a good writer and i am a good writer i didn't know that till then but i am but they didn't believe me that i knew what i was doing and this frustrated the hell out of me and i'll give you a perfect example um, did you play baseball? I did as a kid. Yeah. Good. Do you know the difference between a foul ball and a, and, and a foul tip? Yes. Okay. I'm going to explain because a lot of people don't know. Okay. So I'm, live, I'm, I'm on the sports center set. And normally if you're lucky, you get to see the highlights before you get on the set, but that doesn't always happen. They're late games. So sometimes they, they throw highlights at you that you've never seen before. And and that can be disconcerting because they don't write the way you speak necessarily. So this kid, 21-year-old intern, throws some highlights on, on the desk in front of me. We came back from commercial, and, and I go right to the highlights. I go, oh, let's go to Wrigley Field. The fir- and the first shot, it says, 
the fan in the front row is hit by a foul tip. Now, I know because I'm an umpire that that's wrong, Mm. but I don't have time to correct it because we're moving on to the next highlight. At the end of every sports center, there's something called a postmortem where all the people involved in the show go to a big room. We all sit at a table and we discuss what went well, what went poorly, what can we fix? So I, uh, I raised my hand and I said, oh, Bob, Bob is the intern. Bob, I just want to explain to you that there's a difference between a foul ball and foul tip. And there's silence at the table. And I said, look, a foul ball is when the ball's hit, goes out of play. Umpire goes foul. If you're stealing third base, you got to go back to second. That's how it is. Dead ball. A foul tip goes from the bat to the catcher's glove. And you see the umpire do that, you know, and signal strike. It's a strike. But it's a live ball. Mm-hmm. So if you're stealing third base, you get to stay there, right? B- big difference, two different things. Mm-hmm. So I explained this and I said, you need to understand that the man was hit with a foul ball. So you do that right the next time. That kid stood up and he said, you're nothing but a picky bitch. And mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm an umpire. And somebody out there knows I'm an umpire and they know I know the difference or I should know the difference between a foul ball and a foul tip. And it gets even better. The next day I went to, into work, my boss called me into his office and he, and he said, um, he called Bob in and he goes, you apologize to Bob. I said, what do you mean? He said, you didn't have any right to correct him. I said, but he was wrong. I, I never raised my voice. I never got angry. And their attitude was that I didn't have a right to question how he wrote his highlights. Even though it was clear, wouldn't you think ESPN would know the difference between a foul ball and a foul tip? That, so, I, that, yeah. that almost blows, that blows my mind. That's almost speechless to that. That's insane. Oh, I have another one. G- give me another one. Okay. <laughs> I was married to a minor league umpire for 12 years. While we're in Connecticut, um, he was no longer, when he married me, sadly, his, his uh, people in baseball said, if you marry her, um, we don't like you involved with the media as an umpire. So um, his supervisor said, if you marry her, there might be a problem. He laughed. He didn't believe them. So three days after we were married, he got released by baseball, broke his heart. But okay, he became a chef. So we're in Connecticut and there's a strike. There's an umpire strike. And I found out through my husband that there weren't going to be umpires on opening day in Toronto with Roger Clemens and Dave Steve, big game, first game of the year. And so um, I asked if I could have the story and he said, yes. And then he said, and they're sending me to Toronto to work the plate. So my husband is going to work the plate on opening day. I pick up the phone. I call ESPN. I go, you guys need to get somebody in New York because they're going to announce there's an umpire strike and there will be replacement umpires on Monday in Toronto. They ignored me. CNN had it. I called in. I said, what is the problem? They said, well, Peter Gammon said something wrong last night, and we can't afford to be wrong twice in 24 hours. I said, yes, but my, trust me, I know my husband is going to be the umpire. <laughs> and then they send uh, um, Dan Patrick up to cover the game, and he goes and he meets my husband, and he, and he goes, hey, man, I see you live in Bristol. He goes, yes. And he said, well, well, that's great. What are you doing there? He said, I'm married to Amy. And he goes, oh. Uh. I'm like, why would I, why don't you trust that I know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of stuff that drove me nuts. Yeah. With, with good reason. That's, that's insane. I, you know, I, when I kind of first looked at this, I thought the story was going to be that you spent all this time at the local news stations and got battered around. And then you finally got to the, the big game and, and ESPN was way better, but it sounds like it's the complete, no. complete opposite. 
Yeah, they, they, the attitude was if you, if you were a woman and you were there, you were, they, you know, I, I, you want another one? I have another one. Absolutely. Okay. So I, I, I'm an avid reader. I read the news every day. And I found this fabulous story about a young man, a college senior who was also played in the football team, who was a medical student. And who discovered a gene, a marker that could could uh, prevent some kinds of heart disease. This kid was going to speak to 200 doctors at a medical convention about what he discovered. And his father was an NFL player, but the kid was adopted. I went, this is the greatest story ever. So I took it to my boss. I said, I want to go interview this kid. And you know what they said to me? This kid played for Washington University in St. Louis. And they said, that's Division Three football. Nobody cares. I said, I think you're missing the point. This is a great story. He's, a, he's the top receiver on the team, but he's also a brilliant kid who was adopted by an NFL player. No, nope, dumb story. So that week, um, Sports Illustrated did a piece on the kid. Suddenly, I'm put on a plane and flown to St. Louis to interview this kid. So I'm like, why didn't you trust that I had some instincts here for what was a good story? Mm. I want to try to to figure out a way to make this not as crazy as it is. Did it ever get better? Or was it just like eventually you you left and it was all just crap the whole time? It 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 was difficult. I mean, it was made difficult, more difficult than it needed to be. There was a man there. You know, this honestly, this was before the internet. So I'm showing you how old I am. Um, it was before the internet. So if we wanted information. Um, you know, we had to call to get to ask for information or, or we had uh, every team put out a team guide to look things up. But at ESPN, there was a guy named Howie and Howie knew everything about every sport that ever happened. You could say, Howie, when was the last time the Jets won by three points in the snow in November? And he would know that. <laughs> so whenever anybody needed anything, how he would wander around. In fact, I think they gave him a radio show at one point and he would wander around. So you would ask him if you needed a piece of information on short notice because you had to go near. So one night, I don't even know what I asked him, but I said, Howie, and I asked him a question and he gave me the information. So what do I do? I go on the air with it. I get called into my boss's office the next day. Why did you say that on the air? Um, because Howie gave me the information and said that was the fact. How he stepped in the doorway, he said, I never told you anything. How do you do your job that way? So now I have no way to get information like every other person in the newsroom because I can't trust it. Now, I'm telling you those stories, but there were plenty of nice people, too. It wasn't always like that, but it was always that lingering thread. And it didn't just happen there. Um, I had a, a gentleman I was up covering the NBA playoffs uh, with the Suns and the Golden State Warriors. And um, all the media people travel together. We all stay in the hotels. We all go out and have a cocktail at night after we're done working. And um, my cameraman and I were leaving a uh, dinner one night. And, and I said, oh, hey, when's the press conference in the morning? Because I was supposed to interview Minute Bowl, who you may remember Minute Bowl, tallest man to ever play in the NBA. And one guy goes, oh, it's at 10. I said, great, we'll see, see you in the morning. So my, my cameraman and I are there at you know, 930, ready to go. The press conference was over. And the gentleman who told me it was at 10 is sitting courtside, hands behind his head, legs stretched out, going, oh, are we a little late this morning for the press conference? Mm -hmm. And I had to do this, this piece on Minute Bowl. 
And I was horrified. And I thought my cameraman was going to hit him. I really did. And I went up to the um, media coordinator for uh, Golden State. And it was a woman, which was rare. And I told her the problem. And she said, well, I'm very sorry, but their day is over. Manute can go home now. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And I'm sorry. I said, but I'll ask. I waited about a half an hour and here came Manute Bowl, nicest man on the planet. He did not have to speak with me. I will be forever grateful. I know he's deceased now, but he was such a nice man. And so I got my work done on time. But it's that kind of, and I don't know why you would do that. I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I, I did a radio show a while back with a man and we're right on the air. And this was a man who replaced me at a local station here when I went to ESPN. And he said, Annie, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm like, why? Why are you saying you're sorry? He said, because we weren't very nice to you back then. Mm -hmm. And I said, what? But you were always nice to me. He said, not behind your back. I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know why it was such a big deal today. There are women everywhere, but I don't know that it's any better for them. I really don't. I guess I'm lucky. I'm just stubborn. Because if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to prove to you I can't. Actually, I'm grateful to all the people that said I, I couldn't be a sportscaster or I couldn't be a referee or I couldn't be an umpire. Because I, I think that's a gift in a way. You tell me I can't do something, you watch me. Yeah. And so maybe it's incentive. Maybe I wouldn't have worked so hard if it had been easy. Yeah. So when you you went from the local news station to ESPN, what, what, what year was this? 90 to 92, I was at ESPN. All right. So, I mean, it was... It, it was a little further in than I, I thought it was. Was ESPN the, you know, the juggernaut that it is now? I mean, it, I guess it had been oh, around yeah. for 12, 12 or 13 ten years. years of that ten point. years. I yeah. think they had their 10-year anniversary. Right there. I was there, but don't quote me. Um, they were already massive. Not like now. Now it's ridiculous. And we only had uh, the st studio in Bristol. And I think we had one. Maybe in Chicago, a little one, but the, it was still Bristol was, you know, the center of the sports universe. And, and you know, as I said, some of the people were, were fine people, but it seems like there were just too many who who objected. I, I don't know. It, it wasn't that I don't know what I'm talking about. I do know what I'm talking about. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But everything they picked on was had nothing to do with my abilities as a broadcaster or my sports knowledge. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can you can't ask me who had the best batting average in 1948. I have no idea. I can look that up. Okay, but ask me about how games are played. So I, I said I've been an official since 1978. Okay, I called my first hockey game in 1978. I did ice hockey first. So. I have a clue what's going on out there. And just because I didn't play doesn't mean I don't have an idea. I, I'm pretty sure I have a better idea what's going on in the field than guys that played the game. You know, maybe not every guy, but you know what I mean. So yeah. I, I'll I'll stand my qualifications up against any guy who's on the air right now. Yeah. But yeah. I'm too old. As they pointed out, sports are targeted to the 18 to 34-year-old males. Once you're over 34, you're too old. Well, that's a, that's a whole nother can of worms, but I just also yeah. wonder, and I don't know whether ESPN was, you know, had, had these types back then, but what, who, what people were, were rougher because, and I'm talking about whether it was the true sports journalists or whether it was the people who were hired that were retired athletes. It seems like a lot of times people who didn't actually do things and are really trying to prove themselves are the ones that are turn out to be jerks more so than the people that are confident in who they were. Do you, did you find that was the case or no? Um, most of the people I knew had never been professional athletes. They might've played in high school. They were regular guys. You know, I, I didn't often like they didn't, when I was there, they didn't have NFL games on there. 
you know, they were still doing truck and tractor pulls. Yeah. And, you know, they got Major League Baseball when I was there. So that was a big deal. So we didn't have a lot of guys who were former players. There were a few, and mostly those were nice guys. It was the guys that seemed like they never really made it in the sports world that seemed to have a hard time with me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like, look, you know, I, you're, I wasn't really an athlete. Yes, I was. I was an ice skater. And that's, you try it. You get out there and see how sweaty you get. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, but don't don't misunderstand me. I, I tell the stories where people were kind of crappy, but there were plenty of people that were nice too. Um, if, if not, maybe I wouldn't have stuck with it. But um, there were some nice people along the way. Mike Tarico was one of my partners there for about uh, six months or so. So we were, that was fun. And he's a good guy. But I don't, I'm glad I did it. Sometimes I, I, I look back and go, did I really do that? I better look and check to see there's really video of me. And there is. So I really did do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did it feel, too? You keep talking about, you know, aging out. We're talking about Mike Tarico. Dan Patrick, all these people are still doing it and are probably going to well, do why they, do you think? They die on the air. So Because guys it? get to die on the air and women don't. Right, now, don't so. get me wrong. They, it, it's like regular TV at this point. If you're a woman who does uh, politics or finance, you have a very specific uh, set of knowledge and they'll keep you. But sports, let's face it, they're... There aren't any, still aren't any real jobs for women. I mean, the dumbest sports casting job there is, is sideline reporting. That's ridiculous. I think it was invented so that they could throw some women out there and go, look, are we great? We got women on the sideline. Honestly, they need nurse on this, a nurse on the sideline, not anyone who knows about sports, because all they do is go is say, well, Bob, I think he pulled his ACL and he's in the tent now being looked at. But there's hardly any real sports. Hire a nurse to be on the side. Um it's it's ridiculous. Why don't we have women in the booth? What was it? 2018. They had. Ah, I'm trying to think of the two women they had who did supposedly an NFL game. They oh, two women were going to in the booth calling the NFL game, but to find them was almost impossible. When you turned on the broadcast, it was Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. But you could go to this other kind of hard station to find to see the two women do it. And they made a big deal out of it. Do you know that they just put their microphones and headsets in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Mm. And neither one, no one, have you heard any other women calling NFL games since 2018? Mm. No, no. But they're taking, this is the NFL trying to pat itself on the back. Look, weren't we great? We gave these two women a shot. You know, that's absurd. Mm. So there still aren't real jobs. Yeah, and and. I don't understand that. Women can speak. Women can understand games. It's not brain surgery, but they're still not invited in the booth. And they're rarely invited to to talk about actual sports. It's more like someone got hurt. That's it. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure, even though you see a lot more women out there because we have a lot more venues. Like in the old days, when you lived in Chicago, there were three stations. Every town had NBC, ABC, CBS, and maybe a public station. So there are only three, six jo- sports jobs in every town. Now there are tons of sports jobs, and yet women still aren't doing, I don't know, big stuff, just like officiating that, you know, other than the NBA, there are very few women officials out there. And I don't understand that either. Yeah. And I I just wonder, well, first of all, with ESPN, were you, was there a a group of of women that got hired at the same time? Were you the only one or did you have any, any colleagues that were, were, I guess, commiserating with you with some of this robin roberts was hired the same week i was okay and she's very nice she's a lovely person 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, clearly she's done very well, but not she's not in sports, is she? No, no. no. And Carolyn Burnson was also there. Lovely woman. Um, but they sat her at her desk and wouldn't let her cover anything or do anything. The whole time I was there, I never saw Carolyn on the air. She might have been on once or twice. I don't know why they did that to her. So she she was forced to come in every day for eight hours and do nothing, not a single assignment. We were the three women there. I don't know. And then there was, I should have known there was a woman there before me, I think Carrie, somebody, and they had a, a, she was a beautiful blonde woman. And they had a picture of her in the newsroom and candles around it. They called it the Carrie Shrine. So what does that mean? What were they doing with that? So I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I said I try not to I try not to take it personally. It wasn't always easy. Luckily I enjoyed what I did for the most part. And there was enjoyment at every station and there was kind of crap at every station. So I know everybody goes to work every day and you don't get along with everybody, do you? Right. Sometimes right. you have to work with people who aren't on your side. And you just push through it and survive. Yeah, but it isn't always that the institution it's not institutionally set up against you at work most of the time like it sounded like it was here so that's a wholly different thing well i i think they they hired women and they expected us to just sit there and they counted us as look we hired a minority mm-hmm. i i really you know they really didn't trust that i had a clue and i'm like why would you hire me if you didn't think i understood what was going on yeah. Yeah. so um I, again i would i would do it again but i don't miss tv at all yeah. I don't, not a, I, not a moment of it. I hear you. I, I understand that. And I wonder, you said that you left there in 92, 93, right after that, what did you do? Because I think I looked, you started your teaching in 2000. So what's happening in those years? Oh in between? my goodness. When I, when I, my contract was not reviewed at ESPN, um, I had nowhere to go. Uh, I got divorced and uh, mm. my husband was not used to me not paying all the bills, which was problematic. Mm. He's deceased now, by the way. He died of COVID. So, uh, huh. and and we stayed friends. We stayed friends. Um, but I came back to Phoenix because I had nowhere else to go. And a dear friend said, "Come on, come live with me." And I had two dogs and four cats in my geo prism. I was driving <laughs> across the country. But I got here and I couldn't get a job doing anything. I but I went to my old station and my general, my boss, my my old news director said, "Give me four months. I'm going to have a job for you." I went, "Great! I'm going to go back to the channel." channel 10 where I used to work. And then he got fired Hmm. and the new guy wanted nothing to do with me. And there I was, I'd been on national TV and I had nothing. I had no job. So I even went to sports bars and I said, look, I can make a great drink and I can entertain your people at your, even, even with they're sober, I I can talk sports with them. They wouldn't hire me because I was almost 40 and I didn't look nice enough for them. I think I tried, I applied for every kind of job. No one would hire me. And you're going to be too young to remember this too. Do you know who Lucille Ball was? Of course. I know Lucy Sh- okay. I don't know. You look like you're 12. Um, well, but, I, well, I appreciate right, that. 20, I appreciate 20. that. A little older than that. <laughs> but you know the one where she's eating the bonbons when they're coming on the conveyor belt? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, I was so desperate that I put myself in as a temp at, then um, they called a, a company called, and they said it's Revlon uh, company, you can come and work on the assembly on the, their assembly line. And, and I was like, okay, cause I was broke. I had nothing. And my husband was here and um, all I could picture was Lucille ball eating the bonbons while I'm working on the assembly line at, mm. at Revlon. 
And he said, don't go. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So you know what I did? I pulled out my baseball gear. I pulled out my football gear. And I went back to officiating amateur sports. Mm. I did everything from Pop Warner to men's leagues in baseball and football, little league. Uh, I mean, and that's what I did. And then I, uh, I, I saw an ad in the paper for a sports reporter at a local newspaper. And I, I said, oh, great. And I went running. It was a little news. It wasn't even the Arizona Republic. It was a local small newspaper. And I went in and, and the editor goes, well, you don't know how to write sports. I said, sir, I wrote sports for 10 years on television. He said, that's not real sports. I said, please give me a chance. And so for $7 an hour, I became a reporter for a small local newspaper. Mm. And all my stories kept ending up on the front page. And then another new small newspaper here said, oh, we'd like to hire you. And then I, so I ended up writing for three newspapers and three magazines. And uh, so I became a print reporter while I was officiating. But I'm going to tell you that it was a very hard time. I did a lot of feeling sorry for me. Mm. You, know, you know, I didn't want to meet and see anybody I knew when they go, oh, hey, what are you doing? You were on ESPN. Well, I'm umpiring Little League. And I, yeah, I did a lot of feeling sorry for me. And uh, then one day somebody said I should be a teacher. I'm like, why, man? I don't like kids, right? But <laughs> I spent all those years uh, officiating high school sports. And uh, I went back to college at 42, 42 and uh, got my teaching certificate, was hired to teach journalism in a, in a magnet program in a Title I school, poverty, you know, and um, taught there for 20 years. And uh, I, I'm very grateful that TV got rid of me when it did, because maybe I'd never be a teacher. And that was an important thing to me, because on top of becoming a teacher, I also became a mother, because I became a foster mom to former student to my students who ended up in foster care. So I have five kids, four kids. Well, they're not all foster kids, but they call me mom. So and they're all in their 20s now. And so I have this my my partner and I have, you know, he and I have five kids basically at this point, all because they came from the streets or foster care or whatever. So had I not been a teacher, I wouldn't be a mom. That's and that's special for sure. I I, I love I love where that story went. It, that you had a you had a rough patch right in the middle, but it, it sounds like it, it went really well. And I do wonder too, you know, becoming a teacher, teaching journalism, did the students realize just you know the how lucky they were to to get somebody who had some real experience i feel like most of the journalism teachers are just like uh you know just the random gym coach that has a free period you know it's funny it my half the people at school they had no idea that i'd been on tv a few did but not many in fact one of my bosses uh, i was a cte teacher which is career technical education which journalism does not belong in. But this woman from the district came into my room and she looked me up and down. She goes, what are you, an English teacher? Like it was a bad thing. I'm like, no, ma'am, I was a journalist. She said, oh, really? I mean, she was literally looking down on me because she didn't think I knew anything about journalism. I said, no, I have a clue what I'm doing here. I also taught video production. We had a, a TV station, a radio station, a newspaper. So they did a, you know, they did TV shows and I taught that. Um, I also, though, later became a reading teacher. Uh, so I had high school kids who, who read at the first grade and second grade level. Um, I'm also certified to teach history. So I am a teacher, but no, very rarely. The kids didn't even believe me. My oldest son, who the first one that I uh, became as foster mom, 
Uh, when he came to live here, I think he saw me do something on TV somewhere. He goes, you know, I didn't believe you that you'd been on TV. I had no idea. So finally, I got some old videos. I put them on YouTube. So if anybody argued, I go, not making this up, guys. There you go. That's me. You're famous. Yes, I am. There you go. <laughs> but no, they didn't believe me at all. I love it. I think that's that's funny. And that's kind of what I figured. The high school kids, I feel like they're just uh, the, the height of pessimism sometimes. Well, my college students weren't much better. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, um, you know, I, I guess what we should kind of go into is you left teaching and then you went into writing. I don't know whether you were writing books while you were teaching or where that I was intersected, but talk a little bit about your your desire to to write not just not just sports articles in the newspaper but actual novels right i did i did it's very ironic in fact my best friend from high school when she found out i was an author she said how the hell did you ever become an author because i'm dyslexic and i didn't know that till i became a reading teacher i went oh my gosh that's what was wrong with me hmm. because in my family i was just stupid and lazy because I come from very smart people. Uh, but I'm dyslexic. And I didn't know that was a thing. They didn't have a name for that when I was a kid. So I struggled in school. And it wasn't until I went to college that I realized I had to figure out a way around it. So I was the one kid in college who didn't party during the week, who got enough sleep, ate right, studied with silence, you know, went to every class because my brother bet me 20 bucks that I would flunk out of college my first semester because I was too stupid to be in college. I would rather have been hit by a truck than pay that debt. Right? <laughs> so the thing is, I didn't like writing at all then. But when I got into television, I had to write, I don't know, 30 stories every day. I wrote, you know, constantly. So then when I went into print reporting, I just had to write longer stories. So the, the leap to novels was not that big, that strange. So what happened when I lost my job at ESPN, I had nothing to do. And I was, it was so bizarre. I mean, I, I was constantly running and, and suddenly I had nothing to do. So I started writing a book with my ex-husband called The Integrity of the Game, which is about Major League Baseball and gambling. And that's another story. But anyway, I wrote it, never went anywhere. And then when I came back to Phoenix and I had found myself with time on my hands, I started writing some more. So I have been writing for novels for over 20 years and but it's a very difficult world. You think getting into sports casting is is tough. Being a, a an author where you can make money is really hard. When I, when I hear young people go, "I'm going to quit my job and be an author," I'm like, "Don't do that! No, don't!" Mm. Because you're going to be you're going to starve. Um, so no, I I love to tell stories. Um, that's why I like being a reporter. Um, I still blog every week and write write an article at least once a week. But um, I like to tell stories. The ironic part is I have five published novels. And I have two that don't have homes and I have two that will never come out of the drawer. Um, but the irony about my, my book writing is that I don't write about sports at all hmm. ever. So yeah. I write about all kinds of different things, but not sports. Well, you were, I guess you were immersed in that for, for so long. So did that first book, you know, about the sports betting, did that ever come out? No, no. My husband had some interesting stories about umpires who were gambling on their own games hmm. I took that to ESPN and then I, my contract wasn't renewed and he always believed I was blackballed. I have no proof of that, mm. but yeah, we, we knew umpires that were gambling on their own games. Oh, well that's, so, that's not a good thing at all. No, no. Now it's okay. Now everybody's gambling. It's great. Right. Mm. Um, but yeah, so 
I, I enjoy telling stories. I really do. But as said, I'm I'm very fortunate that I have social security and a teacher pension because I don't know that I'll ever make any money on it. Yeah. And you said that you've got two books that never are never going to leave the drawer. Is it because you didn't think they were good? Other people didn't think so? Or why are they not leaving the drawers? Look, it's just like learning to play a sport. What You played baseball. What else did you play? Tennis. Were you great the first time you picked up a tennis racket? <laughs> no, I don't think I was ever great. <laughs> okay. It's like that with writing. Right. Okay. Right. Because I've written nine books at this point. I have two that I'm trying to sell right now. And as I said, five are published. But it's 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 a learning process. You get better. I never took a creative writing class in my life. I took news writing, but that was it. So I've learned this on my own. And and my early books are not that good. <laughs> so it takes a while to learn your craft, just like you probably were a better tennis player when you when you stopped playing or if you're still playing than you were when you started. It's the same with writing. Right, right. So what are the the books that are published that people can actually find? What are they uh, what are they about? They're not about sports. So what are they about? Well, uh, Wolfcatcher came out last February. Um, that story is based on the burial, real burial of a man 900 years ago outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. I live in Arizona. And um, his his body was exhumed in 1939. And, and there was this 600 fabulous funerary objects, tools and, and weapons and crystals and paints and all kinds of things. And they called him, uh, the Hopi workers who, were, who helped to exhume him with the archaeologists looked at him and they saw some swords, wooden swords that had human hands and hoofs, animal hoofs on the bottom. And they said he was a magician and nobody knew what that meant, but they were drawing his picture um, as they were, you know, they had artists there and um, they described him as looking sort of Caucasian. Now do the math 900 years ago, how could there have been someone who might've been Caucasian or partly Caucasian in Arizona? Come on. Didn't Columbus discover America? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I was hired by a magazine to write about who that man might have been. And uh, I got in all kinds of trouble because I was ignorant about Native American beliefs. And, and I got in trouble doing that. But I turned that into a novel called Wolfcatcher. And it goes back and forth in time from modern day times with the ignorant reporter trying to find out who the magician might have been. And back in time, 900 years ago, um, to the high country of Arizona where this man lived. And it's told from his point of view. Uh, so this one's, a, uh, it's about archaeological looting. Um, mm. So that's kind of the main theme there because there's a looter involved. Um, but as I said, I write about, uh, I've written about PTSD and uh, sabotage of a train and and domestic violence and trying to save the wild horses on the Salt River here that are being killed and, and um I've written about all kinds. I wrote a book called um, The Scent of Rain, which is about a cult here in Arizona where um, old men marry 80 wives and some of them are 12-year-old girls. I don't know if you've heard of that, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and their their prophet is- Warren Jeffs, yeah. Warren, yes. I went up there and pretended I didn't know where I was. It was one of the most frightening places I've ever been in my life. Mm. Um, I went with a friend, pretended I didn't know, you know, they all women all wore the prairie dresses and it was terrifying. And I interviewed a woman who escaped from there. Uh, she came to my office, she came to my house and she talked, I asked her like two questions and she talked for three hours. And she, when her interview was over, I wanted to scrub my flesh with a wire brush. It was mm. awful because she escaped twice and was dragged back twice. Mm. 
Um, and so she spent her life trying to help girls escape from there. So I wrote a book from a 16 year old girl's point of view about what that might be like. I also have a book called, um, what is my book called? The Castle. It's about a serial rapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, no sports. I mean, I, and I've written in like every genre there is. I've written suspense, thriller. I've written um, uh, uh, contemporary fiction, women's fiction, uh, young adult fiction. Um, I've got historical fiction. Um, so yeah, I, I just write about, and it's funny, my agent said, couldn't you write a nice romance? I'm like, it's not my thing. <laughs> I write about things that interest me and and issues in the news. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I guess playing the pessimist, playing devil's advocate, I just wonder, it sounds like you kind of write things like you just said, that interest you and you're writing for you because it does make it hard. Let's say to, to find an Anne Montgomery fan, they don't know what they're getting when they pick up your book. If you're writing about like so many agent- different things. Well, that, and that's a problem as an author. I really, you know how authors make money. They write in one genre. They establish a, a you know, a group of people that love their books. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done that. And and maybe it's good that I can, uh, I can afford to live without money from writing, but it's very hard. Writing a book is, is a, is a big investment in your time and in your heart. And, and I can't write about things I'm not interested in. So, and I am a news junkie. I mean, I read the newspaper every day and have for 45, 50 years, 40 years. Um, And I read everything. I don't just read the sports page. I still read the sports page, but not with the same, you know, when I was a reporter, I had to know everything that was going on. Now I read about it. Yeah. Well, I, I hear you. That's the same way with this podcast. People tell me you should just find one niche and talk about, you know, sports or relationships or something like i want to talk to who i want to talk to i don't need i i mean whoever's wanting to follow along follow along and and strap in because yeah i i i don't want that either but that's i get the same thing so yeah and and i i i I can't but and i just wrote one called forgotten sons which is uh a friend of mine was hospitalized she had to have a terrible surgery that might have left her in a wheelchair for the rest of her life and um before she, she, I, I flew to be her healthcare power of attorney because her husband's an army veteran who's couldn't handle it. And um, the night before her surgery, she handed me a, a Ziploc bag full of 75 year old letters from World War II. They were from her uncle who was mysteriously hit by a train after the war ended and he was in France. And do you know who, who, who the Graves guys are, the Graves units? No. And this is probably the worst job in the military, the graves units. And these are the guys who collect, identify and bury the dead. Because do you ever think, I mean, people talk about hitting the beach at Normandy, right? All those guys carrying guns. There were guys carrying shovels because someone had to pick up the bodies and they had to pick them up before the next group of guys came in. When you go to uh, other countries and you see, I think we have American cemeteries in 18 different countries uh, and, and American soldiers built those. And that's all war dead that never came home. And her uncle was assigned to one of those graves units, which is horrendous because they might find a foot and they have to figure out who that soldier might be. And I followed him through the postmarks on his letters uh, through Europe. And he was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was at Normandy. He was at uh, with Patton in Czechoslovakia. He was in Nuremberg after the war, and and they, they he never uh, he died mysteriously. They told him he was hit, killed in an accident. I'm pretty sure it was suicide by his letters. Um, so anyway, I wrote a book about that because I promised her I wouldn't. Then she walked out of the hospital, and I still had to write the book. 
So, <laughs> so I have that one, but it's necessarily gruesome. It's a gruesome book because mm. of the way their lives were for 18 months. He picked up body parts and no one ever gives those guys any credit ever. Have you ever seen them in a war movie? No. Everybody no. acts like the bodies just vaporize. Mm. So yeah, so I wrote it, and that's a hard sell. I don't know if anybody's going to publish that. So yeah, I. So what? I mean, what is your your writing process? I feel like if you are writing things that you're so passionate about, it may make it easier just to crank it out rather than these people that are following a formula and trying to yeah. trying to write the same thing over and over. So what's that look like? Well, I I, I do want to say that when I was a teacher, I not I I'm a middle class kid. You know, I didn't grow up in poverty, and most of my kids did. And I cannot tell you the number of children I met who'd been raped or and whose families didn't care, you know, because it, it's mostly girls, of course. And and they protected the boys. So that's why I wrote a book about rape, because I I had a support group and, and girls were raped and nobody did anything about it or cared. So a lot of the things I ran into were because I taught in this school where I ran into situations that people live in. And I realized how privileged I am that I didn't have to deal with a lot of that stuff or, or spousal abuse. That's terrible. And I did deal with that at one point. So I, there's so many issues going on and, and I don't think we look at them clearly enough. And yes, I love sports, but they're not really not worth my time to write a novel about. So um, for me, because I was writing when I was still teaching, I would see something in the paper that interested me. Like we had an Amtrak train that was derailed here in 1995 Right after the Oklahoma City bombing, it was considered domestic terrorism, and it's never been solved. And I wrote a book partially about that that wreck because I found it fascinating. So what I do is I think of a, a, an idea long enough, I kind of let it roll around in my head for a few months, and then I start to do research. And I re- and that's where I get to be a reporter again because I call people up and go, "Hey, I'm writing a book. Can I come and interview you?" I wrote one about the horses here and I needed a cattle rancher. So I called a cattle rancher. I said, can I come to your ranch? He said, sure, come on out. So I get to put on my reporter hat again. Once I do all the interviews and the research, I could usually knock out a novel in the, during my summer break, 10 weeks. You know, I'm pretty, once I get it in my head, I'm pretty good. It's coming up with the ideas. And, uh, and then I just be a reporter again. Yeah. So how can people find these books? AnnMontgomeryWriter.com. And that's Anne with an E. So AnnMontgomeryWriter.com. Uh, all my books are there. I, you know, I don't want to give you all webs, all, all links, but there are, everything's there. And anybody can, I'm delighted to have anybody contact me. Um, happy to talk about just about anything. Um, but writing is mostly what I do now because I'm retired from teaching. I'm, I've had enough <laughs> teaching. Yeah. I got you. Well, we, we've covered so much. And I feel like we could, we could continue on, but uh, it's been an actual pleasure. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. So that was Anne Montgomery, amazing person. Really appreciate her joining me. If you want to go check out her books, she's written about so many amazing things. The link to that will be in the show notes. She would appreciate that. I would appreciate you giving her some love there. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. Go check us out on all the social media, Not Enough Podcasts. Give us five-star reviews on Apple and on Spotify. Leave a written review. Even better. Really glad you came Check out some of the previous interviews if you would. A lot of amazing ones to come up. So we'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh, 
or make you think. Or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.